Friends, if you have your Bibles, open with them ahead of time with me to 2 Corinthians, not 1st, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 11 and 12 will be where we spend most of our time this morning. Uh, after five weeks in our under pressure series, looking at the lives of God's people, the saints of the Old Testament who found themselves in difficult circumstances, undergoing hardships and uh, terrible situations, and how God saw them through each one, we can take solace from that. We can learn the important lessons from Scripture in the lives of each one of these people. But today we've moved from the saints of the Old Testament to God's people in the New Testament. The people in the Old Testament uh, believed in the living God and trusted Him. Uh, we saw Abraham, the father of faith, and people who followed in his footsteps. But now we come to people who know Jesus and who uh, have a relationship with God through His Son, people who are now in the family of God, people who are much closer to us in our experience of everyday life. As believers seeking to follow Jesus today, we have so much to learn from the example of our brothers and sisters in faith in the New Testament. And so that's where we'll be today. We've looked at people undergoing extraordinary circumstances. Uh, people like Daniel in the lion's den. Or Joseph sold into slavery by his own brothers. Things that we can, can learn from but can't always relate to. But today's person under pressure, today's saint, is somebody we can learn from directly. In fact, I think Scripture has crafted this story today so that you and I can learn directly from it. It's our story as well. We're going to be looking at the life of a person who is praying for healing, who's undergoing a trial in their body. They're not well. Something has gone terribly wrong. They're praying to be delivered from it. And the answer from God is not what they're hoping for. That answer is not forthcoming. And we've all found ourselves in situations like this from time to time. People look to Jesus for healing during his public ministry. Not only was he the greatest teacher ever to teach on this, in this old world, but he was also one who not only loved people who were hurting, who related to them, but he could do something about it. They brought sick people. They brought demon-possessed people. They brought troubled people of all kinds to Jesus, and he was able to heal them. An example of that is found in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, it says, I'll begin a verse earlier. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues. Remember, he was a great teacher. Preaching the good news of the kingdom. He was the greatest preacher. And healing every disease and sickness among the people. The New Testament tells us that people flocked from all over the entire province of Syria, the Roman province, to find Jesus of Nazareth and be healed by him. They had faith in him, and God honored that faith, and he healed them. The only exception we ever see of that is when he is in his hometown of Nazareth, where the people put him in a box. You are not some great teacher, preacher, healer. You are the carpenter's son. And their preconceived notion of who he was limited any faith. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. And then there was no healings taking place because God honored the faith of the people who put their faith in God through Jesus and God healed them without faith. They weren't healed. So this sets the stage for what God's people and people who experienced Jesus firsthand expected when they suffered in the flesh. Take it to Jesus. He can do something about it. And so we find today, as today's message, it right away takes you to the story of the Apostle Paul. Today's message, I've called it a thorn in the flesh. That's a proverbial statement now. We talk about any problem we have, physical problem, emotional problem, relational problem, as our thorn in the flesh. Sometimes that thorn in the flesh becomes the center of our whole life. We have a problem, a debilitating illness, and that can become what we're all about. It can consume us. It can define us. Some people are defined by their disability. Some people are defined by an illness. 
a relational problem, a mental or emotional problem they're dealing with, and that can become who they're about. Or we can be people who say, yes, I have a thorn in the flesh, but it's not who I am. It's something that by the grace of God I deal with, but it's not who I am. Well, we're going to see where that proverbial phrase, a thorn in the flesh, comes from. It was actually a true, real incident in the life of one of the great people in Scripture, Paul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. He was born and raised as Saul of Tarsus. He was a uh, Pharisaic Jew. He was probably born about 6 AD, so probably about 10 years after the birth of Jesus. And when he was about 30 years old, between 30 and 33, he was now a public teacher. He was on the fast track religiously. He was at the top of his class. And to show that he was extra zealous for his faith, Judaism, he became the great persecutor of the early church. He was the man, it seems, behind the scenes that organized and facilitated the murder of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. That was Saul. He was there looking on and approving. And when he was expanding the scope of his persecution from Jerusalem and Judea, and he was on his way to Damascus, God had other plans for him. Jesus met him personally on the road to Damascus, knocked him off his horse with the glory of God, blinded him, and then Paul had to change who he was and what he was about. He realized that this Jesus of Nazareth wasn't a false teacher, but he was God himself, the very Son of God. And Paul put his faith in Jesus as his Savior and served him for the rest of his life until he too became a martyr and died for his faith. It's an incredible story. But one of the things I believe that allowed Paul to accomplish so much for the kingdom of God. You talk about having heroes, somebody who can hit a baseball or put the puck in the net on a sheet of hockey ice. Those are sports heroes. But people who have changed the world that we need to look up to should be men and women in Scripture, people like the Apostle Paul. And the thorn in the flesh, I believe, is part of what made him who he was as a follower of Jesus. It's an important part of who he was. So we are so quick about getting rid of our thorns, pulling them out, putting them in the rearview mirror. But as I look at the story of Paul, it gives me pause. First thing we want to look at is the context of Paul talking about the thorn in his flesh. He didn't talk about it much. He only ever shares about it to the church in Corinth in this one particular situation. And the background of it is that the Apostle Paul is under attack. Now, he's been under attack many times. As he lists some of his suffering for Jesus, you'll see he was beaten to a pulp many times. He bore in his body the scars of his faith. He was beat up by the time he wrote this letter. Had been through much suffering. But the attack we're talking about in this passage was he was being attacked by people in the church. Sometimes we know that uh, the, uh, the church conflicts between brothers and sisters in Christ can be terribly mean, can be terribly hurtful. And the Apostle Paul must have been wounded in his heart when the church that he loved and gave himself for, he was the founding pastor of that church in Corinth, and he put years of his life into it. At one stretch, he was there at least a year and a half, perhaps even more, planting and growing that church. But now it seems that a group of false teachers have come in, and the church is turning their back on the Apostle Paul and his gospel and his view of Jesus, and they're accepting a twist on the faith taught by these new apostles, these false apostles, these false teachers. Now, who those people were, we see them showing up in many of the churches the Apostle Paul uh, founded. These people, we call them Judaizers. Now, that's related to Judaism. The fact was, these people were Christian Jewish teachers who believed that to be a Christian, as a Gentile, you first really needed to convert to Judaism. 
that the, all Christians were really Jewish Christians, and they wanted you as a Gentile to, to convert and keep all of the Jewish Old Testament laws and diet, circumcision, Sabbath, everything. They wanted to lay the yoke of the Old Testament law on Gentile believers. And that issue had been settled at the Council of Jerusalem after Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. They held this great council where they dealt with that issue. Do the Gentile believers, because the gospel was growing fast in the Gentile world, much faster than it was among the Jews, and do these new believers need to live like Jews, like the earliest Christians, the Jewish Christians? And the answer was, no. No, they don't. They need to live by faith in Jesus, not by the law, because the law can only convict of sin. It can't save. And once these people know they're sinners and repent and turn to Jesus, they need to live a Christian life, to love God with all their hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and love their neighbor as themselves. That is the royal law for the follower of Christ, no longer the Old Testament law. It served its place, and it was still an important part of the devotional religious life of the early Jewish Christians, but it wasn't to be laid on the Gentile believers. Well, now, in one of Paul's churches in Corinth, these people come in, and they have to prove themselves, these false teachers, to be superior to Paul. In fact, in the New International Version, Paul's term for them is translated as super apostles. These people say, yeah, Paul's an apostle, but we're, we're mega apostles. We're super apostles. Look at, we have letters of recommendation from the, the greatest Christians, from the church in Jerusalem, and, and we have wonderful experiences, and we have insight and wisdom and visions and special teaching for you. Now, how Paul, how's Paul going to defend himself from these attacks that they're teaching of Judaistic legalism is superior because they're superior. Well, the first nine chapters of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is rejoicing because many of the issues and problems that he addressed to the church in 1 Corinthians have been dealt with. And Paul's received the good news and he's rejoicing with them. But now in chapters 10 to 13, Paul has to turn his attention to defend himself from these super apostles and their false teaching. We see that beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I told you to find chapter 12, but we're backing up a little into chapter 11, beginning up there in verse 13. Paul's referring to these super apostles. He says, For such men, these false teachers, Judaizers, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Now it's not enough for Paul to say they're going to get what's coming to them. This church is actively harboring these people and they're comparing themselves to Paul, and Paul doesn't want to brag. Paul doesn't want to compare himself. He's forced to do it. He says he's being forced to boast. He says again and again, it's against his nature. He thinks it's foolish to boast. He only wants to boast in Jesus and what he's done for him, but they are comparing themselves to him, and Paul is forced to now allow that comparison to take place. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning about midway through verse 21. I'll read that. On the screen, you'll see the summation, what Paul likes to boast about. Uh, so about midway through verse 21, I'll pick it up. Paul says, What anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, he writes. He doesn't want to do this. I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about are they Hebrews? Remember, these are Judaizers from Jerusalem. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely and have been exposed to death again and again. 
Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. And I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches, Who is weak and I don't feel weak? Who's led into sin and I don't inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. (laughs) That's the list Paul has given. He's not talking about victory after victory. I planted this church and I led this many and I baptized this many thousand. He could do all of that. He talks about all the whoopings he's taken. He's taken talking about the scars he bears. What to the world's eyes look like defeats. Here's my prison record. <laughs> Here's my travel itinerary. Ships tend to sink under me. You know, what's going on with Paul? But he sums it up by saying, if I'm going to boast about anything, I'm going to boast about those things that show my weakness. Now that's important. He's setting the stage for us to understand the thorn in the flesh. These people, they not only boasted about their their teaching, their Jewish heritage, their Jewish bona fides, but they also, it seems, talk about visions and special knowledge that they've received from God, which then forces Paul's hand to reveal something that he doesn't reveal anywhere else that he has received visions. And we know that because we see it throughout the book of Acts. Remember uh, the the Macedonian call and many visions that Paul have had where the Lord, not only that, but beginning on the the road to Damascus where he met Jesus face to face, Paul has received divine visions before. But he tells us something that incredible that we've never seen any place else he reveals an incredible vision that none of the false teachers have anything like that to share this passage if i put it in context with anything else it's most like the book of revelation paul has had a vision of heaven He's been to heaven just as the Apostle John, it says, was caught up to heaven to see what God was going to do in the book of Revelation. Now you read the book of Revelation, you say, this is incredible. Uh, the things heard and seen, the, the secrets revealed, all that's happening. Paul also was caught up. He says he was caught up to paradise. He was caught up to the third heaven, which in Jewish thought was the highest of heavens. And he heard things spoken by the mouth of God. But where John was commanded, write these down, write them in a scroll, write it down, pass it on. The apostle Paul was told, don't tell anyone about this. This isn't for public consumption. Paul, this is for you alone. And I believe in many ways God gave him that incredible vision to strengthen him for all of the suffering he was going to do during his ministry. God kept him on track knowing what the finish line was. To be with the Lord. To get back home to be with Him in heaven. Wherever Paul went, whatever he did, whatever suffering he experienced, he knew it was one step closer home. He was one step closer to being with Jesus in heaven. It kept him going. Paul reveals that in chapter 12, the first six verses, Paul says, I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ. Now, Paul talks about himself in the third person. That's weird because he switches to the third and then right away he switches back to the first person talking about the impact this vision had on him. But this was what Jewish rabbis often did 
out of humility, when they taught about their personal experience, they would speak in the third person of a person, another person. But this is obviously Paul speaking of himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that. But I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Now that's mature. Apostle Paul says, I don't go around talking about my vision of heaven like those books people write 45 minutes in heaven and so forth about their near-death experiences and then they live the rest of their life on the book circuit and make money from it and everything. Paul says, no, this wasn't for public consumption. This was for me. God did this for me and I want you to judge me not by a vision I claim to have had, by, by, but by what I say and what I do, who I really am in your experience. That's what Paul does. And that shows great maturity and great humility. Yes, Paul says, I knew a man caught up to heaven. Now, we're very curious about this, and we can't go into all of the, the background of it today. We just don't have time. Paul places it 14 years ago. Now, I've often just in a cursory reading, and maybe you've done the same thing, always thought this probably was when Paul, remember he mentioned he was stoned to death, and we know on the first missionary journey, him and Barnabas were mistaken for Greek gods, and when they said, no, we're not Greek gods, we're people like you, the people were so disappointed, they stoned him. And Paul was stoned to death. And they were already mourning him and planning his funeral, and boop, up he popped, and he went back to the town to preach. Now, I've often thought, well, that's a perfect place for Paul to go up to paradise because then it would be like a resurrection. And maybe Lazarus, for instance, could tell a similar story between his death and then his resurrection that we read about in John chapter 11. But no, that doesn't fit. 14 years earlier in Paul's life was what we often think of as the silent years. Paul was the fire-breathing persecutor of the church in his early 30s. And then he becomes a follower of Jesus. And he says that he spent some years thinking over his theology in the deserts of Arabia. And then he goes back home to Tarsus in Asia Minor up in eastern Turkey today. And he does ministry on his own up there. There's about eight to ten years in there that Paul's not on the scene in Scripture. Until Barnabas remembers Paul and goes looking for him to get some help in the growing ministry at the church in Antioch. It seems that this is where the vision takes place during these unwritten about silent years, which is appropriate because this was very important to the Apostle Paul and his ministry, but it wasn't for others. It wasn't for them. It was for Paul. Now this incredible blessing and vision... <laughs> It had another side to it. The thorn in the flesh. I've called the thorn in the flesh a necessary pain. The picture on the screen tells the story. When somebody is full of themselves, we say they're all puffed up. And you want to take a pin. <laughs> Don't you? That's just human nature. You want to take a pin and pop them. If somebody's a real know-it-all, you want to catch them in a mistake and take them down. I've noticed that when I play Trivial Pursuit in our family. We treat each other like this. <laughs> you know? they, they often call me Mr. Know-It-All. The reality is my wife is Mrs. Know-It-All. She's a wonderful woman. The reality is she's only Mrs. Know-It-All because she married Mr. Know-It-All. That's, that's her married name. 
But people like to do that. If somebody's full of themselves, you want to pop them. Paul, amazingly, says God gives him a thorn in the flesh to play that role so he's not puffed up. That's the literal word in Scripture, so I'm not puffed up, so I'm not self-exalted, so I'm not conceited and full of myself. And being that, full of his ego would get him off track and make him useless. Those 14 years since that vision would have been useless for the kingdom of God unless... God had grounded Paul back to being dependent on Jesus. And he does that, the pen that he uses, the pen that he uses to pop that balloon of conceit is the thorn in the flesh. It's the thorn in the flesh, the necessary pain. We read about that directly after Paul reveals the vision, the blessing. He now shares about the thorn, a burden. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, reading to verse 8. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. There Paul admits that was his vision. (laughs) Because it's not some other man's vision that God gave him the thorn in the flesh to keep him from being conceited. It's his To keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now that sounds serious. Messenger of Satan. The Greek word for messenger is angelos, an angel of Satan. That's probably metaphorically speaking. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh is, but God gives him a chronic, painful, suffering situation to keep him from being full of himself. From going on the the talk show tour and selling his book, My 45 Minutes in Heaven. God keeps him grounded, humble, and dependent daily on God through the thorn in the flesh through this necessary pain keeps him from being puffed up and useless for the kingdom of God. Now, friends, I've studied this as perhaps you have too. There's many speculations, but that's all they are, are speculations as to what the thorn in the flesh may be. Thorn in the flesh, skolos, the word for thorn is an unusual word in Scripture, but it means just that. It means a thorn that gets in you and irritates you and once it's under the skin it just works away at you and you just it drives you nuts has anybody ever had like a sliver something like that in your skin or in your eye oh there's things like that that just under your fingernails Mm, don't get me started thorn in the flesh it tormented him and paul says it's a messenger from satan but it's allowed by god because friend be sure As a child of God, God allows no pain or suffering in your life apart from what He allows. That's the wind blowing. Do you hear that? (laughs) Could you maybe close the door? There. Thank you. (laughs) My pages are blowing and everything. That's nice. It's a beautiful day here in Alberta. Those of you watching elsewhere, it's a beautiful day here today. But this thorn in the flesh, we've speculated what it is. Because flesh might be metaphorical. It might be anything from an emotional or psychological condition. Some people thought Paul maybe struggled with severe clinical depression or anxiety. Did you see the life of suffering he lived? This wouldn't surprise me. Or maybe it was something like epilepsy. They look for evidence of that. Or perhaps most often we see it, maybe it was an eye problem, maybe it was a communication problem. Paul says many places, he's not a good communicator. For as wise and and incredibly brilliant man as he was, he says, I'm not much to look at, I'm not much to listen to, I'm not a gifted orator. He's not a teacher publicly like Jesus. But he also says elsewhere, he says in Galatians 6.11, he says, see, I sign the letter with my own hand. See how large the letters are I write, which indicates perhaps it was an eye problem that he struggled with. Can you imagine all of his journeys and teaching and studies and scroll reading if his eyes were not good, how much help he would need, feeling like he was a burden on those around him? 
We don't know what it is. It's a chronic condition. And friends, I think that's on purpose. I think all of that speculation, it's harmless. It, it, it's okay to do that. But God, I believe, Scripture's perfect. And God does not tell us the thorn in the flesh so that whatever your thorn is, you connect to this passage. Perhaps you're struggling with an addiction. Perhaps you're struggling with chronic health condition. Something that makes every day a battle. This is your story. Paul's story becomes your story. Because it's not specified, we all connect to it. Do you get where I'm coming from? And the Apostle Paul, he accepts it. Satan meant it for harm. A messenger of Satan. It, sickness in a fallen world are all messengers of Satan. Satan would mean it for your harm, but just as Joseph's brothers meant his selling him into slavery for his harm, God meant it for good. The thorn in the flesh had a dual message from Satan. It was for harm and torment. Paul says it buffets me. The literal Greek says it beats me up every day. It beats me black and blue. This is a struggle every day for Paul. And yet... That was Satan's message, but God meant it for something more. Well, friends, when we have those chronic conditions, we can take heart. Because Scripture doesn't speak of us escaping from them. It speaks of us getting perspective on them and understanding them and seeing how God uses them in our lives. One of the key ways God can use suffering, hardship, afflictions, thorn in the flesh, is to mold His children through discipline. Discipline isn't a negative thing. It's one of the positive things that parents do for their children to grow them into being good people. Chapter 12 of Hebrews speaks of that. Two verses from there, verse 7 and 10 say, endure hardship. That's like a thorn in the flesh as well. Relational struggles, whatever. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons For what son is not disciplined by his father? Down to verse 10. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. The thorn in the flesh. When received as discipline from a loving father can not only not hurt us, but can actually grow us in a positive way. Is that possible? I mentioned before the service this passage from Hebrews of a loving parent molding their child through discipline reminds me of a wonderful song singer-songwriter Dan Fogelberg penned years ago back in the 80s. He wrote a song, a true song about his father who was a music teacher and a band leader and the song appropriately was called Leader of the Band. And he gets to the line, reflecting on the role his father played in his life. He gets to the line about discipline. And it says, We earned his love through discipline, a thundering velvet hand. It took his gentle ways of molding souls, took me years to understand. What a true line for every parent. Discipline done correctly God's way is a gentle way of molding your soul. If it's a thorn in the flesh though, it may not seem so gentle. The Bible says all discipline hurts, painful at the time, but later it reaps a harvest of righteousness. Now that is, we know that hardship, suffering, they are important tools that God uses in growing our character. Romans 5 beginning in verse 3, makes that very clear. Romans 5, 3 says, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. God's goal for you is to be like Jesus. 
And one of the ways to mold you and move you to Christ-like character is to allow struggles and pains to come into your life to keep you depending on God every day. To come to the end of your own resources and strength and depend on God's resources. It's one of the greatest things chronic conditions and illness can do in our lives. Blessings, burdens. I have a picture, visual of blessings and burdens. There we are. Which do you want? Now let me tell you, I took that picture. That picture, I didn't take it, but I chose it specifically. Because I lift a lot of weight. No, I don't. (laughs) If I lift a weight, it's more likely the German chocolate cake on the end of my fork. But that's what that is. My favorite cake. My birthday this past week, we had a Dairy Queen ice cream cake. I like Dairy Queen ice cream cakes. Love them. But if it was just for me and not to share with the grandkids, I would always choose German chocolate. That moist chocolate layer. And between it, in that incredible sweetened condensed milk, you have that mixture of coconut and pecans. And that German chocolate cake is topped with brownies. Isn't that awesome? Delicious. I think of that as a blessing. God loves to give you blessings. He just loves to pour out good things on his kids. He's crazy about you. But if that's all you got every day, what would you be like in a year? In six months? In a month? Would you be healthy? Oh no. There'd be more of you to see, but you wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be that healthy. But burdens, burdens have their definition built into them. They're heavy. They weigh you down. They are chronic. They're like lifting weights. Both of those are needed. And God uses both for us, the blessings and the burdens. Now, when the Apostle Paul prays, he says he prays for that to be removed. And we'll see that right away. Praying is not the wrong thing to do. Paul says, I prayed three times, Lord, take it away from me. We should pray about burdens. We don't know if this burden, how God is using it, if it's temporary, if it's going to stay longer. Even Jesus prayed about his burdens. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22. It says he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed three times. Paul prays three times. Lord, take it away. Take it away. Paul was praying a prayer of substitution. He wanted sickness to be substituted with health. And that's what we generally pray for as well. But Jesus, if you notice his prayer, I think it was a prayer of transformation. That cup, which was a cup of suffering, was going to become the cup of salvation that we share at the Lord's table. And Jesus prayed for his Father's will. And that's what Paul comes around to as well. We often want blessing, only blessing, steady diet of blessing. There's whole denominations, health, wealth, prosperity. They're all about blessing. But as I look at Scripture, the giants of the faith, men, women, even young people of faith, that faith most often grows and becomes strong only through burdens, borne by the strength that God provides, only by the burdens. Jesus prayed. And yet prayer in itself, it takes us to the Lord and throws us at His feet. I have a quote about prayer from a man named Samuel Shoemaker. Samuel Shoemaker says, Prayer may not change things for you, but it for sure changes you for things. Don't pray to escape trouble. Don't pray to be comfortable in your emotions. Pray to do the will of God in every situation. Nothing else is worth praying for. <laughs> That's not just a, a nice quote. Samuel Shoemaker lived it. He was, a, he was an Episcopal minister back when that meant something in the U.S. In the northern Midwest. 
He's all but forgotten today. Except for the fact that he had an incredible impact on people with addictions. He founded a group called the Oxford Group. The full name was the Oxford Group for Drunks. And it was a support group for people struggling with alcohol addictions where they would go to their meetings and they would support one another and they would share their journey together. And in doing that, this Episcopal priest, shoemaker, he developed 12 steps in a spiritual journey that these people needed to go through to be free from their addiction. You could tell who he had impact on. We remember Bill Wilson We remember uh, Dr. Bob Smith, the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, who time and again stood in public and said, our 12 steps are based on the teaching of Father William Shoemaker. Samuel Shoemaker, rather. They were based on his teaching. This man knew what he was talking about. In your weakness, you need the strength, not of an unknown higher power, He taught the reality. His 12 steps were based in Christ. You needed Jesus. He was your strength. Replace your weakness and admit it and be honest about it. You're powerless before it. That was step number one. Step number two was repentance. Turn to Jesus. Not a higher power. Turn to Jesus. Now to make it publicly palatable, the Alcoholics Anonymous founders, they took out the direct references to Jesus, though they believed in Him. That's powerful. It may not change your circumstances, but it'll change you. So we need to follow Jesus and seek God's will for us. Not our will, but yours. Finally, Finally, God's answer to Paul's prayer. He prayed for substitution, take that pain away. But God, instead of healing, gave him a promise. And the promise was God's grace is enough. Sometimes we see sufficient and we say, well, that's barely enough. No, sufficient is enough for anything you'll ever need. You never can have a need that God's grace isn't enough for. It's overflowing. It's renewed day by day. I love God's answer to Paul. I'll begin a little earlier in verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, take away from me. But he said to me. And the Greek, the Greek of that, the tense, is but he says once and for all to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. (laughs) This gets back to Paul's earlier teaching. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak then I'm strong. Paul's not a crazy person in love with pain. Paul's a person who's standing on the promises of God and finding out that when you are weak in the circumstances of life, God's grace gives you His resources and His strength to rise above those circumstances. Oh friends, His promise of grace Remember grace, it's the Greek word charis, like charisma, charismatic. It's a free gift. God in His mercy, mercy is that God does not punish you as your sins deserve. That's mercy. But grace is God gives you what you don't deserve. He doesn't give you what you do deserve, mercy. He gives you what you don't deserve, salvation. Adoption into His family. His grace and resources and strength for every situation. And most often, this can only be revealed to us, the depth of it, through the struggles of life. Through the thorns in our flesh. First Peter, Peter has just been teaching in chapter 5, about the fact that Satan's a roaring lion and the world hates you and they're going to persecute you. But he follows that up in verse 10 of 1 Peter 5 with this verse. 
And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. God's grace, his strength in the face of persecution. We often mention the fact that during our prayer time that we are able to come to prayer. We don't have to go into a time of of, uh, becoming worthy to come into the presence of God. Many people, they wouldn't set foot in the presence, for instance, of Queen Elizabeth, or no matter what you may think of the person in the office, uh, go into the presence of the Prime Minister of Canada unless you checked yourself in the mirror and got cleaned up and were on your best behavior. But God says, no, you don't come here to be judged. You come to me in prayer for grace. My throne is a throne of grace. We have God of grace in prayer. Hebrews 4.16, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God's grace is enough in persecution. When we come to Him in prayer, it's His grace allows Him to hear us and know just what we need and when we need it. When the Apostle Paul was saying his last goodbye to the Ephesian elders, a church that loved him so, he didn't even go into town. He just met them on the docks. And he knew, as God had revealed to him in a number of ways, that he'd never see them again. This was his last goodbye. And what does he commit them into? God's grace. And not just God's grace, but the grace of God revealed to them in God's Word, the Bible, the Word of God, is how God's grace is communicated to us. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 32 to the elders, Now I commit you to God and to the Word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Among God's very saints is what that means. God's Word can reveal Jesus to you. The Word of grace, salvation, it's all through the Word of God, which is a Word of grace. Friends, there's not a circumstance you're going to face that God's grace is not sufficient for. Earlier in 2 Corinthians, Paul makes that very point. In 2 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 8, Paul writes, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things... At all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. The works that Jesus has chosen you for. They'll be done, His work will be done by His strength in His way. All of grace from beginning to end. It's not just that salvation, it's every breath we breathe, it's the days we live, it's our lives. are testimonies of God's grace the thorn in the flesh. If it had been up to me, it would have been pulled right away. Paul wouldn't have had a chronic condition, a debilitating disease, whatever it was. He wouldn't have carried that pain and that burden and that torment every day. I would have just gotten rid of it. But he wouldn't have been who he was because of that. I think, as Paul writes his later letters, like Philippians written in jail, 2 Timothy, his farewell address. Paul reflects on the suffering of his life and what it did for him, the results of the thorn. I think we look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, a familiar passage, and we see the result of Paul's thorn in the flesh. Paul has just thanked the church for sending a gift and some people to take care of him, to renew their concern for him. They've been cut off from him for a while. And Paul thanks them, but he says in verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned. How did he learn this important lesson? The thorn in the flesh. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. 
I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. His grace is enough. His grace is sufficient. What do you need God's grace for today? What thorn do you have? Is it a chronic condition? Is it emotional? Psychological? Spiritual burden? What burdens are you bearing? Are you just trying to use the last bit of your strength to hang on? Or have you heard the call of Jesus? Come to Me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take up my burden, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants to be your strength. That's His grace. He wants you to step aside and let Him bear your burden to take away the fear, to help you endure the pain, whatever He's called you to, whatever season you're going through, it's an opportunity to trust Him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Paul. Lord, You gave him such a blessing. You gave him a sneak preview of heaven. Lord, he heard from Your very lips incredible things that, Lord, kept his heart strong on the difficult road that lay before him. When he was first saved, You told one of the believers, Lord, that in his life You would show Paul how much he must suffer for your name. And Lord, whatever he suffered, including the thorn, he was able to because you answered his prayer, not with a substitution, but by transforming that burden into an opportunity for your grace. Lord, today, those who hear my voice, you know the ones, Lord, that have chronic pain. Lord, those that have illnesses and diseases, the doctors are helpless before. Those who have fear, loved ones walking in ways that it concerns them. They want to see them come back to their faith. Lord, we have many burdens and trials and hardships. Father, we also have Your grace. And it is enough for every situation. Lord, You don't want Your children to just hang on by their fingernails in the circumstances of life. You want us to live above the circumstances, to walk with Jesus. Lord, Paul, people didn't think of him because of his thorn. They thought of him because they saw Jesus in him. And Lord, in the hardships we experience, may people see less of us and more of Jesus. Father, this is a hard thing and it's the work of a lifetime to give ourselves to You daily. But Lord, let it start right now. Let it start today. Open our eyes to Your grace. We ask this all in Jesus' loving name. Amen. God bless you.